Dotnet Rocks, episode 1154, recorded Saturday, June 13th, 2015. Thank you very much, and welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And uh, we're geeking out today. Ah, I always like a geek out. We're geeking out on energy storage. Yeah, I, you know, this was originally listed as the battery show right? Uh, on the geek out voting list. It's number one. This will be the first time we've just taken the number one and done it. Mm-hmm. Um, but as I dug deeper into it, it's like, well, you can't just talk about batteries. Yeah, storage can take many forms. And there's lots of different variations on it. But, you know, we've had lots of feedback from the listeners this time. And I've got a pretty good idea where they want to go. So uh, we know what to do. All right. Well, let's roll that crazy music because I got something cool for you. All right, dude, what do you got? On Better Know a Framework today, uh, something that came from a real project, um, doing a kiosk app for uh, for a company mm-hmm. in a public place with WPF and a touchscreen and an Intel NUC. And uh, it works really well. Love the NUC, huh? Yep. We needed to use Windows 8.1. Yeah. For hardware reasons, mm-hmm. drivers, et cetera, for the audio thing that I'm doing. And Windows 8.1 plus kiosk equals problem. Guess why? Uh oh. And you think that's like the tablet edition of the operating system that should be perfect for a kiosk? Yeah, it should, except that there are all these charms that people can walk up to the screen, swipe from the right. Get into your settings. You want all that stuff turned off. Yeah, exactly. You got to disable that stuff. Well, so that should be easy, right? Sure, right. It must be just a <laughs> switch somewhere, right? Yeah, except that Microsoft really doesn't want you to disable that. Especially, you know, there's stuff that you can disable the hotspots. Yeah. But we're talking about a swipe. No, that that white that charm on the right, that's part of the system. You cannot disable that. But you know what? There's more than one way to skin a cat because explorer.exe is what contains all that BS. Oh, okay. So just kill Explorer before you run your app. In fact, you can even write some code to kill Explorer that you run in the constructor of your app at the very beginning of it or in your loaded event. But uh, there's a there's a way to do that. And then there's a lot of ways that you shouldn't do it. But uh, <laughs> I'm just thinking, and Explorer kind of important. Well, what the operating system bring it back? No, you you re- once you run an app, there really isn't any need for Explorer in kiosk. Right, Explorer right. is for user interface, so that people can interact with Windows with a, you know, the taskbar and the. And you the, don't want them to interact with Windows. You, don't you want, want them to just interact. interact with the app. Absolutely. So if you drop to a command line and you type task kill slash F slash I M explorer.exe, Explorer goes bye-bye. Right. So therefore, you should be able to do this with a process, but you need a process start info object. So it's one, two, three, four, five, six lines of code, and you can create your own kill Explorer routine. And if you go to tinyurl.com slash win8kiosk mode, you will see my blog post explaining it and uh, with that little snippet of code that works just wonderfully. Nice. 
Yeah. That's a good one. So, yeah, obviously you're building a kiosk. Yep, building a kiosk. You want all that Chrome to go away. Right. And, uh, man, I, I searched. You, you can't believe how many people have this problem. And then it, it sort of just hits you all of a sudden. Oh, yeah, that's Explore. Just kill it. <laughs> <laughs> but when your app ends, then what? You well, know? your app doesn't end. Right, because it's, it's kiosk. In a kiosk, it runs all the time. Right. And the only time it ends is if the power goes off. Yeah, and then you should boot back up and restart the app and back exactly. in the kiosk mode. Exactly. So not something that you do in any other situation because messing around with Explorer EXE and killing it and loading it in a interactive Windows installation is kind of dangerous. But in this case, you want one app to run, one app to run only. There you go. And it doesn't have to be a, uh, a Win 8 Metro app or universal app or a windows store app or whatever they call them because there is a kiosk mode in that. Um, but, uh, back in the good old desktop, there isn't. So there you go. Know it, learn it, love it. Richard, who's talking to us today? Grabbed a comment off of show 946, the one we did on the DC revolution. We were talking about Lumen Cash and all that other cool tech. Yeah. And uh, Zach Young made this comment. That's more than a year ago now where he said, hey, this was an awesome show. And it's great to hear about some great tech out there right now. I would love to hear what you guys think about the energy storage problem for residential. You mentioned some battery options, but what about storage back to the grid or compressed air or flywheels? Are any of these viable? Hmm. Viable is an interesting question, isn't it? What does yeah. it mean to be viable? Zach, I want to answer your question, but I think it's going to take a whole show. <laughs> <laughs> Which is why I read this now, because we're going to talk about energy storage. We're probably going to get into exactly those things. Right. Because uh, it's a, it's definitely a challenge. And there's a lots of different people trying to address this in a lot of different ways. So, Zach, thanks so much for your comment. .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website, .netrocks.com, or through any of the social medias we've got. We're on the Google Pluses and the Facebooks. And if you comment there, we can read it on the show, and we'll send you a mug as well. And we should say right here that if you want to get us on Twitter, I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. And uh, you can reach us that way. It's easy. And I tweeted out this morning as I was assembling the notes for this show that, hey, I'm, this is the show I'm working on. And then got seriously delayed finishing my notes because I ended up in great long conversations okay. about battery technology and Tesla's new battery and all of these sorts of problems. But uh, it helped me crystallize it, the areas we really should focus in on if we're going to talk about energy storage. Awesome. So where do we start, Richard? Uh, you know, I like a good history lesson, don't you? Of course. So there has been, and I spent some time on this, there has been a lot of folks in the archaeological space sort of debating whether or not people in antiquity made batteries. Hmm. There's a thing called the the Baghdad battery, There's a, and a few other ones, and they looked at them for electroplating and things like this, but the pretty core fundamental technology, terracotta pot or jar, you know, you imagine like a, a vase-shaped thing, Yeah. in the center of it in an iron rod. Around that iron rod with some spacing, a copper cylinder, and then it's filled with some kind of acid, right. vinegar, um, lemon juice, I mean, anything like that. Sure. We'll actually, you've done this, it looks like a potato battery, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. kind of thing. It'll generate a, a small amount of power. And these would have been big enough. They, they've, they've now made versions of this and said, yeah, they definitely work and you can use them for electroplating. And we found artifacts that sort of look like that. 
but it may not actually be that. You know, there's another mm-hmm. archaeological argument that says the iron rod is actually the anchor point for a scroll and the copper cylinder was the cover and then it was put in a terracotta pot to protect it. But, of course, the papyrus or whatever, the scroll materials is all rotted away and now you think it's a battery. Yeah. So just for uh, a brief history lesson, what year are we talking for the Metal Age? Because obviously we have to have uh, iron. We have yeah. To be able so to- in, uh, you are talking into the 1000 BC range. Right. So pretty ancient, but uh, whether or not they were actually making batteries is absolutely clear. They were working with metals then, right? They yep. did plate things with with uh, gold, right? You know, it wasn't just solid gold, but also gold plating. We presume, you know, folks would think electroplating, but there's other ways to plate as well that don't need that technology. So right. there's not real solid evidence of really ancient batteries. When you start talking about uh, after the Enlightenment in the 1600s is when you actually have a clear history of people trying to understand electricity. Mm-hmm. And in those early days, the, the, the perception was that electricity was a lot like water, right? Which right. is an easy mistake to make. We talked about that years ago. We sure did. And so uh, one of the early technologies in that space was a thing called a Leyden jar. Okay. And the Leyden jar was designed to condense this electrical force, which is why they eventually be called the condensers. Uh, and so the way this would work is you, it was literally a jar and they eventually learned to put a layer of metal, typically tin or copper on the outside of it and a layer of metal on the inside of it, but don't let the two touch Hmm. and then fill it with a liquid, often water. Water, yeah. Right. And, and then they would use electrostatic charging. They would, you know, rub a piece of amber or one design had a crank on a sphere of sulfur, anything that would create some ions and it would build up a charge, a charge strong enough to create sparks. So Leyden jars were kind of magical. Was that a German thing? Was that a mushin broke? The guy who discovered that? It, they, they, it was a guy named Leyden in the end. They, oh, they, Leyden. The reason okay. the name, the name actually came from there. I mean, there's a lot of people working on this at the same time and they were sharing information the whole time. And the reason I bring up the Leyden jar is that it's sort of the root of the word battery too. Ah. Because a, one Leyden jar on its own was only so powerful, but if you took a group of them together and connected them up, you could whack some serious power out of it. And a certain relative of yours, one Benjamin Franklin, in the middle 1700s, talked about this idea like a battery of cannons right. of a battery of Leyden jars. Something that is more powerful the more you connect together. Right. Yeah. And they, uh, and that's the term stuck. Huh. Even though they weren't even working with batteries. In a lot of ways, a Leyden jar is an early prototypical capacitor. So Dr. Ben coined that term. Apparently. That's the, it may be apocryphal because, you know, Ben claims a lot of stuff. Yeah, he does. People often claim it for him, yeah. but uh, I don't see a lot of refuting that. Mm. I do like the idea that it, the idea of battery coming from battery cannons. And when you look at the typical shape of a Leyden jar, you can see how it's sort of cannonish. It's a it's cylinder. Right. And so, you know, I buy that. Yeah, sure. battery makes no sense as a name. It doesn't really. It's kind of daft. If you don't want to talk about real battery, real first battery, it's Alessandro Volta. The, the guy that the Volt is named after. Volta, which yeah, was Volta. also a JavaScript transpiler, I think, wasn't it? <laughs> yes, it was. <laughs> and we talked about that on Don Rock's way back oh when. Oh, my God. Where did I pull that one out? That's pretty funny. Yeah. Uh, 1800. So, I mean, and what I really like about this, just a reminder, it's only been a couple of hundred years we've been playing with electricity. Yeah. Right. It's not that long ago. Right. And he made a voltatic pile, right? So, he used his name. The voltatic pile, which was literally just discs of copper and zinc stacked on top of each other, separated by cloth that had been soaked in a salty solution, in a brine. And 
This was nowhere near as powerful as the Leyden jars of the time. Leyden jars had these huge sparks that would come out of them, but they would discharge very quickly and they were gone. What was different with Volta's invention was that while it didn't have a lot of power, the power lasted. Hmm. Right? A Leyden jar, you'd spend 20 minutes charging it up and then the whole thing would be discharged in a fraction of a second. Hmm. Volta's batteries lasted almost an hour. Wow. Now, I mean, it's nowhere near what we expect from batteries today, but it was a huge leap at the time that you'd have this thing for an hour. So we can thank the Italians for pasta, pizza, and Volta. The beginning of batteries. The beginning of batteries. And then uh, there's another Italian that has something to do with it too, right? Galvani? Yeah. Uh, I mean, and that's the Galvanic method. You right. know, they, they, they were all working on these things at the same time. I, and I get this far because there's the essence of a battery. Mm. There's two primary, well, it's really three elements it comes down to, right? You had the zinc and the copper mm-hmm. and that brine-soaked cloth. Mm-hmm. So you have a positive terminal, which we call a cathode. You have a negative terminal, which we call an anode. Mm-hmm. And then you have an electrolyte, Yeah. right? And so Volta had all of those elements. And pretty much every battery we look at when we talk about electrochemical storage mm. has those elements. Interesting. Right? So... Uh, right away, I mean, Volta's design had problems. As soon as you started using it, the copper started to get hydrogen bubbles on it, which A, are flammable, yeah. but B, also break the battery down. It starts generating more and more resistance, so it has less power available to it. So is that why zinc- lead was brought in? Well, it, yeah. it's we Right away, you see folks, as they start playing with this, they start using different forms of copper, using kinds, different kinds of zinc, tinkering with anodes, cathodes, and electrolytes. And... Honest to goodness, buddy, as I dig into current generation research papers, what I see is tinkering. Yeah. We haven't got solid science around this. You know, this, I I end up talking about this fairly often now, and it's worth bringing up again. There are really two approaches to new technology. One approach is what happened with nuclear power and nuclear weapons, which is that physicists, having come up with the atomic model... Mm-hmm. said, well, if n- a nucleus contains protons and neutrons and it has shells of electrons and we keep adding protons, we get different elements, then somewhere up this chain of elements, we'll get to these elements that are so heavy, they'll start emitting beta particles and alpha particles. You know, they'll be radioactive. Yeah. And certain combinations will ha- have be more reactive or less reactive. And they predicted the existence of plutonium. Based on science. Based on a calculation. Yeah. And then set the engineers to make it, a la right. the Manhattan Project. And the other side of it is the engineers set aside uh, a bunch of stuff, and they start putting stuff together and messing around or tinkering, as you say. Yeah. They and then they come up, something. they stumble on something. Right. I take some copper. I take some zinc. I take some cloth soaked in a briny solution. I put them together, and something's going on here. Yeah. And it's amazing how much science, battery technology, while has gotten better, is still very tinkery, and it's not the only one. Yeah. You know, I'll talk a little bit about superconductors later on in the show, but the the high temperature superconductors, which was all the rage thirty years ago, yeah. right? The the little co- hovering cubes of ceramic that would float in the air, right? We still don't actually know how they work. Yeah. Right? We have just, we have been alchemists. We have mixed these compounds together and tried different experiments with them and getting better results or worse results. And we're still just trying to figure it out. Mm-hmm. And so that is how battery technology, electrochemical battery technology evolved. So, you know, you fast forward from Volta's invention in the 18, in 1800 up to like 1860, that's when you see real lead acid batteries that are pretty much the same battery that we get today in our car. 
right? And yeah. that is the, what was brilliant about what Gaston Plante came up with in, in that time was he, both the le- anode and the cathode are lead. One is oxidized, one isn't, but it's the same material. And you use sulfuric acid as the electrolyte. Right. The other thing he discovered was, all right, you run this battery and it makes lead sulfate. So it pulls the sulfur out of the acid and puts it into the lead. So it coats the electrodes. And after a while, as the coating gets thicker and thicker, the battery stops working. You have discharged the battery. But if you reverse the current and start putting charge into the battery at the correct rate, the sulfur will leap back off the lead, rejoin with the solution and make more sulfuric acid. The battery's rechargeable. Uh Uh-huh. So early batteries like those copper zinc batteries and later carbon zinc batteries were what they call primary batteries. You discharged them and once they were discharged, they were garbage. Right. But with the, those lead acid batteries, even back then, here was a re- routinely rechargeable battery. And the age of them, I think, is important because we have a very deep understanding of lead acid batteries. It's why they persist. And do you think that um, looking at battery technology as it has evolved sort of is informed by that early model and maybe that uh, – generations and uh, leaps and uh, you know quantum leaps may be uh, maybe based on a completely different model it's entirely possible I mean one of the, the point here is that you're doing experimentation and so then experimentation tends to be incremental to right. find anything right where you're going to see a quantum leap is if someone comes up with a really good physical model a concept in physics about how this works mm. that once you see that physical model makes allows you to leap in the right direction yeah. well given that that is true then X mm. Right. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what that leap is. And pretty much as I assemble all this information, it's like, that's not happened. We have just made incremental improvements and incremental improvements and so on. Mm. Now, most of this conversation, if we're going to talk about chemical batteries, is going to be the rechargeable kind, because that's what's dominated the industry and what's most interesting for everything we're going to do is matter. Sure. I might as well just run down the couple of primary batteries that we know about. And when we were kids, zinc carbon batteries, the dr- first dry cells were a big deal. Mm-hmm. Because the problem with lead-acid batteries is it's full of sulfuric acid. Right. If you knock that stuff over, it's bad. Right. Right? It'll hurt people. It's dangerous. They're heavy and they're messy. And, you know, these are the dimensions that are matter on a battery is all of these sort of elements. So the zinc carbon dry cell was a big deal. Now, it's not actually completely dry. It just didn't have a liquid in it. It uses a, a paste of ammonium chloride and plaster of Paris in the original version. Wasn't the first electric car that, uh, you know, uh, starred in the... Uh, movie Who Killed the Electric Car? Wasn't it a lead acid battery? Absolutely, yeah, the EV1. Yeah, and that was one of the reasons why they were afraid to pull the trigger and bring it to market was because it would catch fire and all that stuff. Yeah, well, that's a th- do you really want a caustic liquid inside of your car yeah. when it gets hit? Like, it's a fairly big deal. And, and we, we can't talk about batteries without talking about Tesla. We'll talk about how Tesla has mitigated that problem sure. very creatively. So the... Flashlight batteries we knew as kids mm-hmm. were zinc carbon batteries. Yeah. And they, they're filled with a paste. They're reliable. They don't last long. Uh, they have a shelf life of maybe a year or two. The modern dry cell batteries, the alkaline battery. Alkaline, battery. yeah. That's yeah. The- and alkaline batteries are pretty ancient. You know, they, they were figured out in the late 1800s as well. Because mm. most batteries up to then had been acids, right? And that was the concern. Sulfuric acid is dangerous. So, you know, let's use something a little safer. Not that caustics are actually that safe. Sure. But it was at least different. So, you know, your modern AA battery is typically an alkali battery. It has a pretty good shelf life. Um, it's made – the anode and cathode are zinc and magnesium dioxide. Mm-hmm. And they have a, a, a 
a potassium chloride base inside of them. Uh, and that's essentially how they work. They have a pretty good shelf life. You know, one thing that happens with alkali batteries, I'm sure you've seen this, is they get white crystals on them. Right. Yeah. And that white crystal comes from the potassium hydroxide leaking over time. Yeah. If you, you, you know, you pick up a remote that you haven't used in four or five years, you open it up because the batteries don't work and you'll see that, that white crust on it. Right. Yeah. And that's, it, that comes from the potassium hydroxide inside of the battery leaking out, interacting with carbon dioxide, and it becomes potassium carbonate, mm. which is a really highly corrosive, uh, salt. Yeah. And it's not particularly toxic or anything. In fact, they use it as a, in foodstuffs in certain cases, but it will eat almost any kind of metal. Hmm. So often if you leave batteries in for a long time, they'll destroy the thing that they're in because of that corrosive ability. And at this point, let me remind everybody that this portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by Stackify. Stackify fully integrates application performance management with error and log management in one platform. Capture performance issues as they happen without having to wait for them to reoccur. A cost-effective and lightweight agent provides you code-level insights. Try Stackify now for free and get your copy of the hilarious Developers Against Humanity card game once you activate your account but use the link bit.ly slash net rocks to get your free game. So where do rechargeables fit into this? So this is the batteries that most people are familiar with these days. And obviously lead acid batteries have continued. They have a very long history. There's nothing wrong with them. Mm-hmm. In fact, we know so much about them. They're, they, you know, when you talk about the overall aspects of a battery, right? Like we, the difference between batteries and store power storage in general, you talk about how many volts can it store? How many amps can it, it can, can it generate? Right. This sort of, there's a difference between its energy density and its power density. Right. Energy density is how many volts has it got? Like how much energy is in there? Mm -hmm. And then power density is how quickly can it be discharged? Right. Follow me? Yep. Sure. I mean, the great thing about lead acid batteries is they've got a nice balance between those things. They hold on to their charge well, they hold a fair bit of energy, and they discharge it at a reasonable rate. Yeah. Which is why they just keep being used over and over and over again. And there's other elements, you know, one of them being cost. Lead and sulfuric acid are cheap. Mm-hmm. Uh, environmental impact, almost 100% recyclable, mm, right? There, yeah. there are companies that will take that battery apart, do some chemistry on it, and make a new battery from it. Yeah. You know, and there's a lot of other batteries that just don't work that well. And also failure modes. Like, what happens when things go wrong? Yeah, what happens when things go wrong? I remember there was uh, reports of laptops hissing and iPhones popping. And- yeah, exactly. Let's get there when we talk about those batteries and what happens. Yeah. There. So beyond the lead acid battery, there was the nickel cadmium battery, right. if you remember it, right? Yep. So the nickel cadmium battery is called that because the electrodes, the anode and the cathode, are nickel and cadmium. Okay. And inside is a potassium hydroxide electrolyte. Fairly similar to other batteries. Yep. So that sort of makes it the first alkaline battery. Now, that battery went out of style for a bunch of reasons. Mm. Now, one of them was that um, it's very toxic. Cadmium, cadmium is, a, is a very serious poison. In fact, in, in 2006, the European Union had this battery directive that basically said, stop using cadmium in batteries. Yeah. We got to stop doing that. It also had some weird charging problems. So this is where charging memory came from. We all had that experience with NICAD batteries mm-hmm. where... Char- if you only discharged them 10% and then recharged them, after a while, it would only ever discharge 10%. They, they started to get crystallized into that state. So a replacement to the nickel-cadmium battery fairly quickly on was a battery called the nickel-metal hydride battery. Yeah, uh, NIMH. So, that's right. And so instead of the cadmium, you have this alloy. And I've been trying to nail down exactly what this alloy is, but it it's a trade secret. 
And it's a bunch of different things together that are far less toxic. It's actually a better battery in the sense that it's energy density, its storage capacity is substantially mm-hmm. higher. Its mm-hmm. discharge is similar. And they've used it a lot. And a lot of those nickel-derived battery designs have been used in all kinds of places. There's special models for satellites. There's, you know, the our run-of-the-mill batteries. Cars have certainly been built with these. Do any know. of these batteries that you've talked about so far require uh, rare earth minerals that are being depleted too fast? Well, the funny thing about rare earths is that they're not rare. <laughs> okay. They just cost more to get, maybe. Well, and that's primarily because most rare earth mining involves thorium. Uh, and right. thorium is radioactive. It's a low-level radioactive, but it is a radioactive. We did a show on thorium that's reactors, right. and thorium is everywhere. Yes. Yeah. Thorium is much more plentiful than uranium, mm. but it is a radioactive. And so most Western countries have stopped mining rare earths because their environmental, re- the, the re- environmental requirements for handling radioactives, whether they're low level radioactives like thorium or high level radioactives like uranium are the same. And so it's just too expensive to do it, which means China, who doesn't care about those things, is doing most of the rare earth mining these days. And that means there's con- issues with the value of the pricing of rare earths. It could easily be fixed if we change the way we mine those things. Yeah. Okay. But metal high. And so metal hydride has its uses. It's a good battery. They're, they're around in lots of places, but the winning battery of the day these days is the lithium and lithium ion batteries. Lithium ion. Now, I mean, the great strength of lithium is that it's an extremely light element. Yeah. Right. And so you can pack more of it in the same amount of space. So where you care about lightweight batteries, your phones. Yeah. Lithium ion is the way to go. And the lithium ion battery is relatively recent. The first real commercial lithium ion battery is like 1991. It was Sony. Hmm. Interesting. Lithium ion has evolved rapidly. Again, they don't really know all the details of how this works, so they just try different things. The <laughs> popular battery today, the popular version of it, is a thing called the LiPo battery, the lithium ion polymer battery. Okay. And its big strength is that its electrolyte is a rigid polymer composite, so it doesn't need to be in a casing to protect any liquid or anything, oh. so you can make it sort of flexible and make it any shape you want. And this is what we use in laptops, and they... Doesn't Elon Musk use them in Teslas too? Yeah. Well, everybody uses them in one form or another. There's lots of variations on this particular battery because it is so dense. Yeah. Right? And what Tesla does is particularly brilliant. And we'll have to get to this, you know, a little further on into the show. Sure. But the thing with the LiPo battery is that because you can make it in, make it lots of different shapes, mm. it you can pack as much battery in as little space as possible. So it's, you don't have to keep a very rigid shape. And so you, you find it in small devices, phones, yeah. remote control cars, all those sorts of things. If- Laptops sort of go back and forth. Ultrabooks tend to use LiPo batteries. It fills up the space that's not being used, right? That's right. Yeah. But when you think about more traditional, bigger laptops with the modular batteries, they tend to be more standard form factor batteries, probably mm-hmm. not LiPo batteries. Yeah. Now, LiPo batteries are the ones you were talking about that have all the great videos about bubbling up and hissing and sometimes exploding yeah. and sometimes catching fire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that is typically caused by bad charging. Really? Yes. And so could it be the, the consumer's problem if they don't charge it correctly? There's a couple of things that go wrong. Now, it's not that's not the only reason. Okay. Defects in the battery. Lithium is combustible with water. And since there's water in virtually every kind of air... Right. As soon as the lithium leaks out in any way, it will burn. 
Yeah. And so in that sense, these things are fairly dangerous. If they get damaged in any way, they will hiss and pop and bubble and so forth. Got so it. one way is the battery pack has a flaw in it, maybe a manufacturing flaw, or it gets dropped, gets cracked. Mm. All of those things can lead to this. But the very common thing, and you see this a lot in not necessarily phones, because they're pretty careful about the way phone chargers work, because uh, it's built into the phone itself. But in like remote control cars and things, you'll see a ton of videos of remote control cars and stuff catching fire and even exploding. So how long before the TSA takes your cell phone away before you get on a plane? Well, we already dangerous. had a wave of that. Remember, all those 787 problems were problems with batteries. Oh, yeah. That big uh, uh, jetliner. What was yeah, that? The 787. 787. Yeah, yeah. Now, in that case, the battery was actually a nickel metal hydride battery. Right, They right. weren't lithium batteries. Yeah. But there have already been conversations around this because it is an issue. Mm. And it's not powerful enough to really take down an airplane. Yeah, yeah. But it will make a heck of a mess. Yeah, it'll make a heck of a disturbance. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is? Uh, it must be that happy time again. You know it. It's time to uninstall the hiss, pop, and bang apps from my iPhone. <laughs> <laughs> Remember those whip apps? Remember that was a thing? Yeah, I do. Jesus yes. Christ. I'm so glad that's passed. Yeah. We're sort of past iFart and all that stuff. Yeah. It's actually time to give a de-experience subscription from Developer Express away to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club, but first, become a UI superhero with DevExpress UI controls and libraries and deliver elegant .NET solutions that address customer needs today and leverage your existing knowledge to build next-generation, touch-enabled solutions for tomorrow. Whether it's an Office-inspired application or a data-centric analytics dashboard, DevExpress Universal ships with everything you'll need to build your best without limits or compromise. Learn more and download your free 30-day trial at devexpress.com slash superhero. Our buddy, who's our winner? Today's winner is Murray Niche. Congratulations, Murray. Yeah. Golf clap for you, sir. He just won a big pile of awesome from Developer Express, the D-Experience subscription. And uh, if you don't know what we're talking about here, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. Every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away $5,000 worth of technology to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But you got to sign up to win. So you mentioned that besides manufacturer flaws, charging might have uh, some impact on whether it hisses and pops. Absolutely. You know... We just take for granted that you can plug something into a wall and charge it up and it won't be a big deal. But there's a lot that goes on to making a charger work. Like, how does a charger know when a battery is charged? Yeah. Like, what does that even look like? Right. So, you think about the original batteries we were charging, NICAD batteries and nickel metal hydride batteries. The charger is a pretty simple device. It's literally just applying the right amount of power to the battery and it's watching the battery's feedback. Mm -hmm. So, it's seeing what happens as a battery charges up is that it's vo emitted voltage level changes. Mm. So as a battery discharges, it's the number of volts that it puts out actually goes down. It's only in a certain range and it's not in a perfectly smooth curve, mm -hmm. right? Or or a line. It's it is sort of a S curve. And so with a typical charger, it'll just keep charging the battery until it hits a certain peak. When the voltage in the battery stops going up yeah. for a certain amount of time, right. the charger will simply shut off. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Simple, right? Works like a charm for NICAD and nickel metal hydride batteries. The problem is that LiPo batteries don't peak. Oh. If you keep applying charge to them, the voltage keeps going so up. So there's got to be some digital signal, perhaps, to the charger to stop? Mm. No, there's another way. Okay. 
It's a little, it has to be a little smarter than that. It'll safer than that too. Okay. And this is why li- if you plug a LiPo battery into a normal charger, it will, if you leave it long enough, just blow up the battery. Oh, really? Because you just keep pouring more power into it, more power into it. It'll start to swell as it overcharges. And if it bursts, the lithium, it gets out, fire starts, possible explosion. My iPhone has a LiPo battery. So I sh- once it's charged, I should unplug it? If you can time it well enough or better still, and the correct thing to do is own a LiPo charger. Hmm. So LiPo chargers are matched to their batteries. So if you have a 2000 milliamp battery, it's really a two amp battery. The way that that charger would actually work for that battery is it would charge it at its rated voltage, which would be 4.2 volts for a typical LiPo 2000 milliamp battery, okay. until it gets to about 80% charge. Now, how does it know it's at 80%? It gets to 4.2 volts. Oh. So the battery's below that. Once the battery gets to 4.2, it's around the 80% charge. At that point, the charger itself switches to another mode. That mode now keeps it charging at exactly 4.2 volts. It will apply charge to the battery, but it won't let it go higher than 4.2 volts in the battery. So if the battery starts to go up, it cuts back the amperage. So I imagine that Apple, those little white chargers that come with iPhones, those are um, specifically designed to charge an iPhone. No, it's in the phone. It's in the phone. Right. Wow. So that's why well, that's phones smart. don't have this problem. Well, that's smart, actually. That it's right. In the phone. So the phone, and it's the whole thing here is, how do you get the battery to 100%? In that second phase, you keep reducing the amperage being sent to the battery to keep the voltage steady until the amperage hits zero. And then the battery is fully charged. That's really smart. Right? But it, where you get into trouble is in these RC cars and things where they have battery packs, and it's a hobby, so you're trying to save money. So why would I buy another charger? I have a charger. Sure. And so it's easy to overcharge batteries. And then you you swell them or you blister them, then you take them out driving for a while. Some good hard bang happens. It cracks because it's been weakened, and boom, you got yourself a fire. Oh, that's bad. Right? Don't do that, kids. Well, and it's just easy to do if you don't understand what's going on with chargers. Right. right? So use the charger that came with your device. Yeah. And, and, and by the careful. way, the charger isn't the cable. I There are people in my house <laughs> of, you know, a certain sex that think that give me a char, go get a charger. And I bring out a charger, you know, the thing that plugs in to the right. wall. And they said, no, I meant a charger, you know, the cable. And I'm like, oh, that's a cable. That's not a charger. So we get our we get our definitions correct. Right. <laughs> and I'm looked at as the biggest jerk in the world for bringing that up. <laughs> You're just a nerd. Go get there a charger. You, you know what I mean. <laughs> so that's pretty much all there is to electrochemical batteries. Okay. So should we talk about the Tesla battery? Because that's kind of the big deal. Yeah. Now space. the Tesla battery, uh, he says, base, Elon Musk says he wants to give every home its own rechargeable DC battery. And that's pretty much like the same batteries we're talking about, although you're probably going to tell me it's different. Well, and, and give and, being several thousand dollars, but yes. Yeah, it's several thousand dollars <laughs> and it's high capacity. But we, when we talked about uh, solar energy and DC stuff, that it just makes sense to have some storage mechanism that if you're collecting sun during the day, you want to use it at night when, uh, you know, to heat your house or whatever, you right. need a battery. There's, and there's even more to it than that. But And you understand, for Tesla, Elon's process of building the car has taken battery to a new level. Yeah. So the actual battery manufacturer behind Tesla is Panasonic. Oh, neat. 
And they've, they've been working in close collaboration. And in the model S, at least, and this is what's, you know, we weren't talking about brilliant for Elon Musk. The battery is the most expensive part in the model S. How do you get the price down? Yeah. So the battery he's actually using is called an NCA battery. And the reason it's called NCA is because the cathode is made of nickel, cobalt, and aluminum. Okay. All right. But other than that, it's a lithium ion battery. Mm-hmm. And he's actually using a standard form factor battery. He's using a battery called an 18650 battery. Okay. And it's called 18650 because it is 18 millimeters wide and 65 millimeters long. Wow. It's roughly the same proportion as an AA battery, but it's about a third longer and a third wider. <laughs> okay. Okay. Sure. Now these are very common batteries. They're usually used in laptops. Right. You know, anytime you have a laptop that has a block battery, it's probably got 18650s in it. It's just a good, efficient battery because it's cheap. They manufacture them in massive quantities. Mm. But each one of those batteries has a safety system built into it to disconnect it if it gets damaged in any way or starts to overheat, mm. right? Which makes them more expensive. Mm. What Tesla's done in the Model S is get a version of the battery made with all that stuff stripped out so that the cell itself is as cheap as possible. And they've been so successful at doing this that since 2008, that collaboration has cut the battery price in half and at the same time increased capacity by almost 60%. And decreased the safety? And it, the safety system is removed from the cell. So in that floorboard panel that actually contains all those batteries in a Model S yeah. is a cooling system so the batteries don't overheat and a fire suppression system. So actually a foam inside that entire cell that if it heats up enough, the foam expands and absorbs heat extremely quickly. So it will chill out the battery so that they cannot burn. Mm. So rather than put all the safety stuff into the cell, they put the safety system into the whole container because that's the only way those cells go. And that's how they reduce the price of the batteries while actually making it overall safer. And it's not like the battery is going to shut down if it gets too hot, which you don't want it to shut down. Right. You want it to keep working. You just don't want it to explode. Yeah. And too hot being it's on fire. Yeah. Right. Like the, that it's, 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 you gotta, there's a difference between the operating temperatures and we're in trouble. Yeah. Yeah. So that battery, the, the, the NCA battery is in one of the versions of the power walls in the big one, the one they call the 10 kilo, the, it's the 10 kilowatt backup battery. Mm. So that's, 10 kilowatts, it's about $3,500 for that battery, right. but it's meant as a backup battery. And the reason is that it's designed to only be cycled about 1,500 times. Oh, right? interesting. So and then what 15, happens? After 1,500 charges and discharges, you start having cells break down and the battery needs to be serviced. So, but a service is possible. You come, They come out, they replace the cells that are broken down. Well, they got to think about if you, the reason you're calling this a backup battery is that You'd only cycle it fifteen hundred times. How many power outages are you going to have? Sure, fifteen hundred power outages is a lot. Yeah, right. Now the battery that most people are talking about is the daily cycle battery. Yeah, okay. Which they generally talk about as the seven kilowatt battery, although it's actually a five kilowatt battery that can put out seven kilowatts at peak load. Because he's magic genius. Right. That's right. It's three thousand dollars. That's the current price going, and it's actually a different compound. It's called what's called an NMC battery because the cathode is nickel, manganese, and cobalt oxides. The actual ratios are apparently a secret, and that battery will cycle five thousand times before it needs maintenance. And you think this was brought about by engineers tinkering with different chemicals and molecules and whatnot? Well, it absolutely is, right? They did use a different compound. Now, they're not the first to make NMC batteries. They've been around for a long time in in industry, but they've made a particular ratio, and they've gotten the price down really low. And 5,000 cycles, 
That's now, let's think about what's this battery actually for, right? The goal of the Powerwall battery, how will this actually help the world? Seven kilowatt hours. So that means you can run it. It'll give you 7,000 watts for an hour, yep. okay? Which is a lot for most houses. Yeah. Maybe you're only consuming 2,000 watts. Like if you're running a microwave oven that's 1,500 watts and you've got a few lights on, you know, at 60 watts each, you could probably get it go only 2,000 watts. Yeah. The main thing that this battery can do for you is take you off the grid for an hour or two when the consumption is at its peak. Right. That's the big benefit that it would have to the world. And this is what Elon wants it to do. Yeah. Because if you realize that the power grid provisions for peak, we have enough power plants running to supply peak at any time because it takes so long to gear up power power plants and gear them down. You can't just shut them off at night. Right. You run them all the time. Yeah. And so, but if you could take 10% of the peak power out, you just didn't need that much power at peak, you'd be talking about turning off dirty power plants. That's the goal. And if you did, if your, your power wall during that one hour of peak every day, even if you're consuming 7,000 watts or 5,000 watts for that hour, you were off the grid. So we could turn that power plant off. That battery would last you if you used it every day for about 13 years. That's about 5,000 days. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Cause it's 5,000 cycles. Yep. So that's the point. Yeah. Right. What this is actually, if it can take you off the peak hour so that you can reduce peak consumption, that's when you start shutting off power plants. Okay. So what happens after 13 years and you want to get a new one of these and it's another $3,000, but what happens to the battery itself? Is it recyclable? It's harder to recycle this battery than it is, say, a lead acid battery because they are alloy cathodes and anodes. Taking it apart is going to be trickier. Mm -hmm. It is a polymer cell, so it's kind of solid. main thing about those batteries is they are contained so that they're not like NICAD IA batteries that people threw away in the garbage. Right. This is a fairly big piece of equipment that you paid real money for. It's going to have a core swap, right? There's going to be a value in giving it back to them so that it, the uh, the environmental impact can be managed. Yeah. How well they're really going to be able to recycle it is a much more complicated question. Yeah, and especially because if everybody buys them at the same time, they'll roughly run out around the same time. So 13 years down the road, there's going to be a glut of these, uh, you know, spent batteries that have to be dealt with. Uh, th I, those are the things I think of. But I mean, the benefit to the consumer is great and the benefit to the grid is certainly great. Yeah. And they're not going to be hit that hard. You know, they can only manufacture them so fast, mm. so they can only pr deliver them so fast. So they're now he wants everyone in the world to have them. I know he does, but he's not going to be able to do it all on the same day. Yeah, that's true. And also, right? now let's talk about uh uh rare chemicals and compounds and minerals in this battery. Does he have is there enough of what he needs to to give everybody in Africa a battery? A, the Africans don't need as much power. Okay. This is a lot. Yeah. This is trying to supply North Americans with power. All right. Which is, we consume a lot more power. But B, uh, this isn't a problem with materials. The materials are pretty common. This is a problem with manufacturing. Got it. This is about making a lot of batteries. Yeah. And that, there, there's already conversation going on about Tesla being the largest consumer batteries in the world right. at this point, all just for the cars and stuff. And they don't make it that many cars. Right. That whole thing about building that massive battery plant out in Nevada is about him realizing, like, oh, we got to make a lot more batteries. Yeah. And I think it's, this is him taking the company exactly where he wanted to go. Yeah. There's another important part here. The fact that the 10 kilowatt battery, 
is meant as a backup battery mm-hmm. with a limited number of cycles, sort of speaks to this idea of why we wouldn't use our Tesla car to run our house. It's a different kind of battery. Yeah. You'd be shortening the lifespan of your car battery. Right. Which has other features. It's more expensive. It's a more expensive battery. It discharges faster and it charges faster because it's set up for what you need from a car. Right, right. As opposed to the NMC battery, which is meant to stay still and be reusable for a very long time. Right. So we probably won't do the car thing because it's the wrong kind of battery for what we want to do for taking power off peak. All right, so let's think about manufacturing. So would whole new manufacturing plants need to go up? Yes. Well, that's our, that's already happening. And would they be in other countries besides America? Are they too are too expensive to build here? No, well, he's already planning on building one in Nevada. Oh, neat. So that, you know, that's all underway already. So Well, that's you know, good. That's I mean, I mean, yeah. if he can, you know, build plants and provide jobs and at the same time take the drain off the grid, uh, I think that's a win-win. The crazy thing is 45 minutes in, we've only really talked about chemical batteries. Right. And there's a bunch of other ways to store power. Can you store power? And this is something that we might take out. Can you store power in uh, methanol? In liquid? Yeah. Well, gasoline is stored power. True. Right? Like all, all those petrochemical liquids are stored power. I mean, the reason we keep using gasoline is it's, it's got the highest power density going. Somebody once told me that methanol was sort of easy to produce on a small scale and then is a good storage mechanism because it can be transported easily. And I'm not talking about ethanol. I'm talking about methanol. Yeah. But you, you can make methanol from biological sources as well. Mm-hmm. You don't have to use petrochemicals to make it. You don't have to dig it out of the ground. You can make it from plants. Right. Uh, and same with ethanol. I mean, they're, they're not that different, those two, yeah, really. Yeah. Um, it still takes energy to make it and store it. Sure. And the, the problem is you don't actually want to burn it. Okay. Right? Now you get into other, you know, the nice thing about chemical batteries is we can take, it's really a way to store power so that you can generate power in an environmentally conscious way, wind, water, so forth, right. then store it to use it when you need to. Yeah. You know, the nice thing about these liquids is you tend to burn them to boil water to spin turbines when you need it, right? right. Or run motors right. and so forth. right, right. But when you talk about other storage techniques, you know, and the funny thing is when you get into stuff like fuel cells, it still sounds like a battery. You know, in the, yeah. in the case of the battery, the anode is use, gets hydrogen. The cathode, which typically gaseous hydrogen, which is expensive to make. The cathode is typically oxygen, which is suspended in water. Mm. You have a thing called a proton exchange membrane that serves as the electrolyte. Yep. Combining the two together makes more water, emits electricity. It's kind of a battery. Right. Fuel cells are awesome. The problem with fuel cells is they're very high energy density. You can have a lot of power in a relatively small space, uh, but they're low power density. They emit that power relatively slowly. Mm. You can't use them to drive a car, really, because it's very hard to get that much energy out of them when you need to accelerate the car. Yet there are hydrogen fuel cell cars out there. There are a few. Yeah. They're, so they're pushing the, that ability to do that. And they're very expensive. Yeah. Right, so it's an expensive technology. Although, again, runs on water. This question is just how you separate out the hydrogen. Mm. There was a question on Twitter when I was prepping the show about, hey, what would superconductors do for power storage? Because okay. you can store power in superconductors. Right, there's a thing called superconductive magnetic energy storage. So there's it's really made up of three things. You have a, a superconductive coil. Uh, a power conditioning system for getting power in and out of it. And all superconductive coils known so far to man require cryogenic cooling. Yeah. I was just going to yeah. say they, they, they haven't brought them up to temperature yet. Right. 
The kind of superconductors that are used at the Large Hadron Collider use liquid helium for cooling, right? Mm. They're nichromium wire. They have to be super cooled. It's inert. It's not going to blow up. It's not going to blow up, but it's super expensive to get that cold. It's really hard to do. Yeah. The, the high-temperature superconductors that were all the rage a couple of decades ago were the ceramic ones that could be cooled with liquid nitrogen, which is dramatically cheaper as a cryogenic cooler. Yeah. Um, but it's very hard to make those into wire. Right. So to make a coil with that, because it's a ceramic, it's not a metal. It's very tricky to actually make it into wire, which again makes it very expensive. But where they've built these, because they have, they're incredibly efficient. Mm-hmm. They don't lose power. As long as the cooling keeps working, they're going to hold on to power at almost 100% efficiency. And so even with conversion from storage to release, it's like 95% efficient. Okay. So if we could get to room temperature superconductors, something could handle you know, normal temperature, so we didn't need cryogenic cooling, this would be a really interesting option. Right. But as long as we have cryogenic cooling, it's too expensive to use. Okay. Another technology that people are fascinated by is supercapacitors or ultracapacitors. They're basically the same thing, but they are very high-density capacitors. And a capacitor, as you know from Electronics 101, stores energy, and it keeps storing energy until it gets past the threshold and then it releases that energy well you can choose when to release it you get it past the threshold it'll just catch fire ask me how i know (laughs) yeah i I remember that story you remember that story paper everywhere (laughs) yeah blew the thing up so capacitors have poor energy density but high power density so you can't store a lot of power for a kilogram of mass of battery Compared to a kilogram of, of supercapacitor, yeah. you'd have about one-tenth the energy capacity in the this, in this supercapacitor. Mm. But you'd have almost 100 times power density. Mm. So it can't hold a lot of energy, but boy, oh boy, can it discharge it fast. Yeah, right. So, you know, think flash bulb. Right? Sure. Those are the kinds of things it's good for. Now, they have interesting applications, both at the micro scale. I mean, they're even used in RAM chips. But imagine, back to the electric car. We already have regenerative braking, right? You've got it in your Prius. Sure. So you step on the brakes, and rather than actually just burning that off as friction by clamping against the the brake rotor, it creates a field that actually acts as a generator to charge the battery. Yeah. But batteries aren't good at charging fast in short bursts like that. Mm. But ultracapacitors are. Mm. And what's the most likely thing you do after you brake your car to a stop? Accelerate. Accelerate again, and ultracapacitors are great at discharging, too. Oh, so that'd be really good in an electric car. And, and yeah, in any application where you're going to have a sudden burst of energy you could collect and then abruptly release, an ultracapacitor is a really interesting choice. Do Does the Tesla use that method? Not that anybody's admitted to yet. Probably not, because scaling ultracapacitors is fairly tricky. Mm. But I have been reading some really interesting research about taking ultracapacitors and combining them with batteries, Mm. lithium-ion batteries, even lead-acid batteries, Mm. to make a thing called an ultra-battery. And these are being scaled to, like, grid storage levels. Because grids have that same problem. They have big spikes of power come in that aren't being used, right? You know, a... A factory shuts down. Suddenly, all that power is not being that you were generating for it isn't being used anymore. You want to suck it up while you gear down power consumption. So, being able to take that wave of power in by a from a big ultra capacitor and then discharge it gradually into a battery to charge that battery up makes a lot of sense. Sure. And when you need a sudden surge of power, like the factory fires on, that ultra capacitor can dump that power onto the grid really quickly, and then you still have the battery backing it for the long term power availability. Hmm. Pretty tricky, yeah. Mr. Campbell. 
it's clever stuff. And there's a mechanical version of the ultra capacitor, which is flywheels. And I only mention them briefly just because there's been some really cool things done with flywheels. Okay. So a flywheel is just a heavy rotating object on very efficient bearings mm. that is a stator for a motor. So you can either apply power to the coil to spin the flywheel up, or you can take power off that coil to spin it down. So you can store power that way. Its enemy is friction. But in some cases, even I saw a version built for F1 race cars to capture their energy at braking by taking that coil and charging the flywheel to spin it up. And then when they went to accelerate, it would go the other way. So like an ultracapacitor, collects energy quickly, dumps it quickly. Oil you wells just have, have flywheels on them, aren't they? don't they? Those big rotating wheels that uh, they're so heavy, they just sort of uh, have a mind of their own. Yeah, they're like a counterweight. They're, and yeah. they're for maintaining consistent behavior, yeah. right? They, you, they, they used to be called governors because they govern the variations in speed. Okay. It creates a sense of inertia that allows it to run very consistently. And that's what flywheels are good for. They have a bunch of things in there. And I worked with flywheel power storage systems, uh, as power backup, mm-hmm. uh, for large scale computers and like universities and things years and years and years ago. Neat. Because you, you'd use the electricity that was available to get the flywheel up to speed. And when the power went out, the flywheel would immediately start discharging that energy that was built up in it. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, it's a pretty interesting technology. It's just, it has to be a certain size. Right. It, it's not good to move around. They have very powerful gyroscopic forces right. when you have something spinning. Yeah. But uh, you can absolutely store power there. So when we talk about... You know, you can spend a lot of time on batteries. Yeah. Right? And on electrochemical batteries, thinking about power storage. But there are other solutions out there that are being worked on. They all come into the same sets of problems. How dense is the power? How dense, well, how dense is the energy? How much can you store in it? How dense is the power? How quickly can you release it? How big is it? Heavy is it? How, how temperature tolerant is it? How hard is it is to recycle? And how much does it cost? Yeah. And I think the, uh, the big, as you say, the big application of this is, well, you know, air conditioning, right? Right. Peak power Peak consumption. Peak power. You know, if, if the world is going to get hotter, we're going to need more air conditioning and cooling in general. And uh, during peaks, that's when we have to take the load off of the grid. And let me take a related note to that. Mm. So I uh, had this week at home with my family all the way. So I did some work around the house. And one of the things I did was I put Nest thermostats in. Mm. We've got a six zone forced air heating system. And so I ended up with six nests. Mm-hmm. And one of the features included in the nest, depending on who's your power supplier, uh, is that the power grid itself can ask your nest to change temperatures. Neat. So you can get a discount on your electrical service by having your air conditioner shut off at peak times. So you sign up for the service through your, because your nest is online, it's able to communicate there. The, when the grid's saying, Hey, we're getting overloaded and we have a choice between browning out, right? We'll start shutting down pieces of the grid yeah. or uh, we can reduce consumption and we'll give everybody who will reduce right now a discount. So you've basically signed up in advance. So your thermostat goes up. Oh, okay. Turn the air conditioners off. You know, and, and that could be done by not just turning the, um, the temperature up. In other words, that have it kick in at a higher temperature, but, um, but by turning it off and turning it on and turning it off and turning it on, just, you know, so that it keeps the place cool, but it's not consistently running. Well, yeah, m- most of the time AC cycles anyway. Yeah. The thing to be aware is that power up and power down time cycles consume more power than operate. Oh, okay. 
So you have to play with that ratio, but I totally get where you're coming from. Right. So, but this idea that there's more than one way to solve this power problem, sure. and it's always going to be a combination yeah. of things. We don't have to put batteries, you know, putting batteries in our house is one option, but also just the ability to, to automate the fact that, hey, we're at peak power right now and you'll get a big discount if we can turn off your AC for a next, the next hour. I'd like to see the look on my neighbor's face when he sees that big 14 foot iron and flywheel in my backyard. (laughs) (laughs) There's your peak power right there. I got your peak power right here. Richard, it's always fascinating talking to you, and this is great stuff. Glad you like it, buddy. Had a good time doing it. And if this show worked for you, please let us know in the comments, and I'll include the link to our list of upcoming geek outs. You can vote for them or suggest some more. This was the number one on the list. This was battery technology, so it'll be coming off the list, and you can put a new number one at the top. Awesome. So we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a